0: This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Markets.
1: And right now, their holiday menu and reservations are open, featuring an expanded menu of fully cooked items. They have boneless ribeye roast prepared sous vide style, roasted tri-tip cedar plank salmon, fully cooked North Atlantic lobster, which brings me back, a full menu of side dishes, and a lot of prepared home meats, desserts, and more. So the online ordering is available through December 22nd for all I just Mentioned
0: also if you've got somebody that's a uh cook or wannabe cook on your holiday list, Zupan's now carrying Finex cast iron cookware that is handcrafted right here in Portland. I have seen this, these things are amazing, they're gorgeous,
1: right? And they look, the handles are great. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm you know, I don't have to reach for a potholder. I want
0: one, and I don't do that much cooking in the house, but I'm just yeah. like, I would look so good in my kitchen. And who isn't a roast lover, by the mm. way? I like the prime rib for uh, I'm not raising my for hand, holiday, oh, yeah. So, yeah.
1: So they have uh, two grades, black and silver, of Snake River Farms American Kobe beef-style wagyu beef for the holidays. And uh, you can order that in-store or by phone. They have a limited supply of Harris Ranch dry-aged Choice standing rib roasts also. Those are delicious and a little bit different than turkey and ham.
0: Very nice. And also remember, New Year's just around the corner. Portland's best selection of sparkling wine and champagne plus large format bottles that are perfect for your New Year's Eve parties. It's Zupan's Markets. It's the place you want to go. Yeah.
1: And hey, by the way, During the holidays, you're all going to be saying cheese, right? Oh, oh yeah, of course. So while you're taking the pictures, you also want to order your custom cheese plate from them. And uh, Mm -hmm. they're made to order
0: by their expert cheesemongers. They've got those three locations, McAdam, Lake Grove, and, of course, Burnside, and always online at (laughs) zoopans.com. Time once again for Portland's food scene podcast, and it's one of our uh, great end of year episodes where we kind of look at the year and look forward to 2018.
1: Note that you didn't say amazing.
0: I did not say amazing. <laughs> I was trying to find something that rhymed with with great, and <clears throat> I just uh, nothing was coming to me.
1: Mm, I can't think of
0: anything either. We've reco- only
1: had four cups of coffee.
0: Yeah, we're recording this just uh, I don't know what six seven days before Christmas, and so you know I got I'll be honest I've got other things on my mind. Really? Yeah. Like what? Well, you know, last-minute last shopping for the girls. That's true. Get I'm, I'm getting addendums to their Christmas lists every single day, wow. especially for my nine-year-old.
1: I haven't been able to produce any lists for my kids, um, so I can expect yeah. creative, creative gifts. But I've gotten them some nice things, and, Court, I didn't bring you anything other than me.
0: No, no, I hate that that's at the end of the day it's all I really expect. But uh, you know, we've been talking about uh, Zupans for some time here. The best thing I did over the weekend was hop on their website zoopans.com and order all my food for for Christmas day. You're all set. Yeah. You're off the hook. Easily off the hook and I'm, it's going to be
1: good. I'm going to uh, I have some nice gift cards to Zupans, and I'm going to hand one to my son who's going to make Christmas dinner. He made Thanksgiving dinner too, which right. was the best Thanksgiving dinner i've had in a long time so i'm looking for he doesn't want to do turkey or ham or r- prime rib so i think we're looking at lasagna no.
0: something like that i know somebody who did lasagna for thanksgiving which is a great way to go
1: All right. Yeah, so switch it up i like to leave it up to him yeah give him a little independence on that and Zupans is a great spot for anybody to go for their holiday stuff so and by the way thank you Zupans for supporting this podcast for the last couple of years yeah it's uh, Without Zupans, I don't, I don't know if you and I would be sitting here right now. There's a, that, it's hard to say, but it would it'd be probably really hard. Right. And we've had other sponsors come and go. And by the way, if Thanks you know them. somebody who would like to sponsor the podcast, yeah. we have more listeners than we've ever had before. Oh, sure. So um, that's just me falling short on the sales end. But um, at any rate, it's good to be here at the completion of our fourth year. Yeah.
0: No, it's, it's been a it's been a whirlwind of year. We've we've it's <laughs> so much has happened in the food world, and we'll talk about that here with uh, Kurt Huffman <laughs> and uh, Matty John, uh, John Bamman. and uh, it's a great discussion. But before we talk about that, quickly, you've got trips coming up in what well, they're are a little ways off, but right now is a great time for people to oh, right now is
1: a really good get time in on, on order, these because We got eight hundred dollars per couple off. Yeah. I'm not going to spend a lot of time right here, right now, because it's on the website, which is being flipped over to <laughs> a new website. Okay. Hope it works this week yeah. uh, at portlandfoodadventures.com. If you'd like to go to Barcelona with Chef Jose Chesa, which we've done with over 30, 35 people so far, uh, we have our fourth trip coming up. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Sicily with my friend Austria Ensign, who, by the way, mentioning holidays. She has a Christmas birthday and we're going out to dinner tomorrow night. So I got to figure something out that covers both that poor woman oh, yeah. her whole life. I she's was thinking, got. It, she's had it go both ways. It's rough. So we're going to Sicily with her. We, we previously, or this year, we went to, a um, uh, bunch of us went to Florence and uh, throughout Tuscany with Astrid. She's been going for 25 years to Italy, knows it well. Sicily, we already have about a half dozen people signed up. Fantastic. And then Mexico City. With, um, with David Briggs of Chocolato de David. I got it right for the first time right off the bat. Yeah. And Catherine Mantarola, uh, a native Mexican Mexico Cityan um, who used to be in Portland and she knows our food scene pretty well. So we're doing a great mezcal and chocolate focused trip. That was longer than I planned on going with those trips. Just go to PortlandFoodAdventures.com and check out the trips,
0: get a discount. Come with us. It's a lot of fun. Very nice. So our two guests today, uh, people that have been on the show, a few, actually a couple of times over the past year, one one each maybe, but it's great to get them back in the room at the same time because we've never done that and kind of pick their brains on what's coming up in 2018.
1: Yeah. Uh, one would be Kurt Huffman, who created a little spark on the podcast two years ago mm-hmm. when he talked about it being a uh, a rough year for restaurateurs in 2016, and I think that probably that um, – hypothesis uh, extended itself right into 2017. We're seeing it be very tough for people to make it because yep. um, we've had restaurants like Chessa and Taylor Railworks close this last year. Last winter didn't help.
0: Yeah. That winter I, we got. Yeah.
1: He couldn't predict the weather. No, but, and we can't this year. I'll note that this time last year we were in the middle of major snowstorms right. and I couldn't even get here to yeah. do a podcast. That's so, right. So we're beyond that, and the other is Maddie John Baman, who everybody knows is the Eater uh, editor for Portland, mm-hmm. and uh, informed us right before we recorded the podcast that his days were numbered at Eater. So by the time this streams, which will be uh, December twenty seventh, we I think we recorded this on the eleventh. Yeah, um, he will be public that he's no longer with Eater any longer or will no longer be with Eater. We don't know exactly when that tenure ends, right? But, He's been there for two and a half years. A major part of the Portland food scene, um, uh, wielded a lot of power and did it with grace. And um, it's really nice to have him on here. We're not going to lose touch with Matty as he as he transitions into at Ravenous Traveler mm-hmm. on Instagram, and I believe he's on Twitter there. Um, and has been do- going to be doing some great things uh, with trips. Also, I hope we can hook up with Matty on a trip. But great to have him here and. Um, And looking forward to 2018 on the heels of last week's podcast, which you should also listen to, Uh with Michael Russell and our own Gary the Foodie talking about what happened in 2017. Maddie, uh, you informed us this morning that your uh, days at Eater are either numbered or by the time this podcast comes out, done.
2: Yep, yep. It's a, it was a super rewarding run of two and a half years, um, somewhere above 2,000 articles during that. Uh, it's just an incredible experience to have uh, working with so many great chefs, um, so many different restaurateurs over the years. And uh, I guess to say I'm definitely a better writer for writing three to five articles a day. Um, and I'm also, I think, hopefully a better person. It's a very humbling position to be able to speak for so many people Um and to constantly track just how um, exciting Portland food is, so it's been amazing.
1: And you had to be a diplomat too, because you had to, there were a lot of times you had to tell people I can't do this, or I'm not ready to do it, or, and other times, as I mentioned to you this morning, I don't know how you deal with so many deadlines waiting for people to get back to you until you can run something. Your patience level had to have been exercised a little bit.
2: <laughs> yeah, fortunately, I'm okay with. Uh, you know, bending in the breeze, shall we say. I really, I think it's fun to uh, be able to roll with whatever I've got and uh, turn something into a great article in 30 minutes if I have to be.
1: Can you share with us at all what you're doing?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to focus a more on culinary travel. Um, so Portland, but also around the world again. Uh, ravenous Traveler is getting lifted off the ground. Um, that's what I thought. I've,
1: and you, yep. when I first met you, you said that's important to me to keep that going.
2: Yeah, yeah. I've, I mean, I've, I've always been really into Gonzo-style journalism, so more like the backpacking whirlwind trip um, around the world of just trying to find regional food that maybe somebody hasn't tried before. Um, so that's kind of, it's going to be back to more of the kind of crazier Gonzo-style writing.
1: So do you think we can get you to come with us on one of our trips and then you'll <laughs> maintain, don't burn your bridges with Eater so that you can write about it?
2: Uh, sure. Yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. I think I will be doing food tours in general. So, I mean, that'd be awesome. Cool.
1: Well, we should talk. We're talking right now. (laughs) So that's a good segue. Let's talk. All (laughs) right. So let's move into um, this podcast, The Business at Hand. By the time this hits the stream waves we will have already done the look back with michael russell and gary um looking back at 2017 and i think we have to probably do a little bit of that because you have to look back at 2017 to cover what we wanted to cover in this podcast which is looking forward to the into looking forward into 2018 talking about some of the challenges and what we might see because i think we can all agree the food scene is changing in many ways yep can you say can you uh, summarize from your point of view, Maddie, um, how that how the scene has changed this this year, and what it means for two thousand eighteen.
2: You know, um, there's a lot going on, and I think I mean I think everyone would agree that Portland's going through a growth spurt um, that is dramatically changing things minute by minute. Uh, And I'm really excited to speak with Kurt about this next subject, but just like the regulations that are kind of – that restaurateurs are facing right now um, between minimum wages and uh, other um, just very fundamental um, issues with running the day-to-day of a restaurant, those things are getting more extreme um, as Portland grows. uh, And And so I feel like it's a real challenge for a lot of chefs to be able to put forward the food that they are most passionate about, something that's really creative and out of the box, which is what Portland's known for. Portland's known for trying new things, food carts. Uh, It's known for regional Thai food. Um, You know, like Portland loves to experiment and be scrappy and create great food. And I want to see how that will fit in to uh, facing these really real challenges of making enough money to keep a restaurant open.
1: You went right to the crux of the matter, because it's going to be, it's not, the regulations uh, have something to do with cost, but on top of that, real estate values, you got the cost of living here, so your employees, I mean, it's a whole different deal. The employees, that's the huge part of it. It's about people, and so... um, so I think we've seen that. And I remember years ago when I first met Ethan Stoll in Seattle, and I mentioned this on the podcast before, he was very jealous of Portland because of the costs of entry in Seattle. He said, you can't be as creative. You can't, you can't try as many things. You have to be more sh- sure. So Kurt, you've you're certainly been in the middle of that. And you've dealt with a lot of creative people like Rick, starting from a food cart, moving them to brick and mortar. Are we going to see that going away a little bit?
3: I don't think that part's gonna be going away because the story is still good and the, the attention that a story like that brings to your opening is good. So I, I but I do think that there's more money involved uh, now. It's harder to get something open for as little as it used to be. I and mean, we opened the original St. Jack for 75 grand um, and we opened Foster Burger for 20 grand. Um, so those days are, those days are gone.
1: What would they cost now?
3: Do double, double at least, and doing something for one fifty these days is hard. I mean, it's just, it's always discouraging for me because every time we do a project, we'll bid it out, and I realize, you know, at the end of the bid, it's like, man, by the time we actually do this, construction costs will be twenty percent higher. So it's a really challenging. It's just a really challenging environment right now, especially just to find really dependable uh, subs that can do the work because they're. In such high demand, so whatever that's just something we have to deal with. I think that, I think that you do have to be safer. So I would agree with that assessment, and I think that's uh, a risk to uh, differentiating Portland from other markets. Uh, my hope is that um, you know people will continue to uh, to take risks in different ways. So I think that we, you know, Portland can be a leader in terms of what you're seeing in counter service models that tend to be a little bit less expensive to manage. I think Portland can be a leader uh, in kind of the bar food scene. Uh, so I think there are ways that Portland's uh, food scene can change and stay uh, exciting and a little bit dangerous. But I do agree that that's definitely how we differentiated ourselves you know, for the last 15 years. And my hope is that that doesn't go away. And the biggest risk is that the chefs that used to come here in, in waves because everybody we, I work with isn't from Portland. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody that cooks here in town, uh, with the ex- exception of my best friend uh, Leather Stores, is from Portland. Um, everybody's from somewhere else. And is that uh, is at some point this is you know does this turn into a the destination a, a second third fourth destination as opposed to wherever?
1: Well, a lot of a lot of chefs who've been on this podcast, Gabriel Rucker, you can go down the list. They're here because it was cheaper than San Francisco move here. And that's probably not going to be the case, or it's not as slam dunk an issue going forward. But I find it interesting that I'm noticing a lot of restaurants like Rowe just told me they're going to talk. Um, and on the other hand, you just named chef of the year, a uh, fast casual chef restaurant, Gabriel <laughs> Pascuzzi yep. at Stacked. So is the is the market kind of going to the the top and the sort of I wouldn't call fast casual the bottom, but where's the the regular dining establishment left in 2018 and beyond um, when people want to do ticketed ticketed reservations so that they're avoiding the pitfalls of doing reservations in the first place and then fast casual has you know doesn't have those reservation problems but I'm one who doesn't like to wait online so going to a restaurant with the prospect of you know, an, an hour wait standing out in the cold not my deal. There's too many too many restaurants in Portland to go to.
2: Right, and that's one of the reasons why I Talk is so great because it's like a it's a reservation system where you pretty much buy uh, your table like you would buy a ticket to a sports event. So you pay for it in advance. If you don't show up, uh, those seats lie empty. And but you've already paid, um, so the restaurant has a little bit more stability as a result of it because um, no shows. You know, no show has really hurt a restaurant um, when it comes to reservations. If you you know you think oh they've got a ton of different reservations I'll just slip through the cracks um, then no they probably did buy a lot more of their uh, meats and, and produce uh, for that and so that's one thing that restaurants are trying to cut you know the food waste they just don't want to have food waste it's a huge problem in America um, so talk is genius and they're the normal restaurant I don't know if there's a normal restaurant left um, I mean you get the traditional kind of sit down restaurant like Tusk uh, restaurant of the year for the Eater Awards um, where you know, they seat you at a table, you get a waiter, it's it's normal. Um, but then you get this incredible thing like stacked uh, and you get – Portland's sandwich game is insane already. We've got Lardo, we've got Bunk, we've got Laurelhurst Market. Um, just incredible sandwiches are happening. And so to see uh, Gabriel come in and just – take it to a new level um, was really impressive for me. And and that's a $11, $13 sandwich. Uh, no tip unless you're tipping at the counter. Um,
1: and nice space too. Yeah. I mean, you're in a nice environment and that matters.
2: Yeah. And so once again, Portland is offering, serving more uh, than necessary for a great price. And uh, that's what makes Portland so great. And hopefully, I mean, that's that's what we're working with, trying well, to preserve.
1: It's also, the I think you can't, there's the bar has been set high, so you can't move in and just do something mediocre and hope that it's going to work. You got to you got to stand out. You got to try at least. Definitely.
3: Well, we'll find out once Pink Taco opens in the Pearl. <laughs> I'm
1: glad you brought that up. I was going to bring that up as uh as that's. Something very interesting that's indicating a change in market conditions. and I thought I think, we'd
2: make it at least 10 minutes without mentioning yeah, pink taco. I was, gonna,
1: I was actually, actually going to open the, with that, pink taco and the pearl. What do you think? What do you think? How do you think it'll do? It's big space. Yeah. I think it's going to be interesting.
3: You know, I think uh, uh, out-of-town chains have a hard time in Portland, no matter where. Um, How's so,
1: the Child doing? I've never, I don't hear much about it. I don't think I think much. they do okay.
3: I, I, think I think all so these too. experiential places do really well, um, mm-hmm. and but you know something like uh, so a restaurant uh, that we thought would do well, in the Pearl uh, Holsteins that came in, they have a place in Vegas and in L.A. I think, and they've been pretty much empty. Uh, so I thought they'd do really well. I haven't uh, even
1: heard of that. So heard about that? Yeah,
3: have we covered them it? extensively. Yeah, yeah, okay, right. the old P.F. Chang's. Maybe, space. It's probably my memory. Yep. But P.F. Chang's, I mean, you know, how many downtown areas does the P.F. Chang's a fail in? And they failed, and then it was empty for 18 months, and then right. they came in. So it'll be, it'll be interesting to see how that place goes. I mean, we kind of have the Portland equivalent of kind of, um, you know, middle American food or less adventurous food comes in the form of all the beer-focused places. So if you go to 10 Barrel or you go to... um uh, what's that other place, uh, right in the pearl? Deschutes. The uh, Deschutes. Those places are just packed. And then they're not trying to do anything special on the menu. Uh, it's just a very comfortable environment. And, uh, and that seems to fit into what travelers to Portland like to see and what Portlanders like to see. You know, Pink Taco is more thematic, it's a little bit cheeky and uh, odd. So um, the food may be just fine. I'm, I don't know. I've never been there. But it's is Portland. Can a place like that thrive in Portland? I'm very interested to find out.
1: Yeah. yeah, you know, and Portland's changed. So the models that we're when we're hypothesizing whether something can make it or not, now you got people coming into Portland that weren't coming in ten years ago. That are, you know, hearing about the food scene, or they're coming here for other reasons. It's not always about the food. And I've, I found even Portlanders there's there is a pretty small subset that knows what's going on with eater that is following it and knows who the chefs are. Then there are all these people who think that the food scene is Portland City Grill, and they'll tell you that. And, um, and then there's a whole nother scene that doesn't, a group of people, a large one, that doesn't even know what's going on. Yeah, <laughs>
2: balancing those groups is always uh, really important because uh, look, like we have so much good food here and it's not right on the surface. Uh, there's Voodoo Donut, but then there's also Blue Star Donut, there's also Pip's Original, Um, You know, we get lost in some of Portland's fame, you know, the Portlandia style fame of uh, really, really weird, eccentric stuff. Um, And we have a really, really amazing food scene hiding uh, in every nook and corner of the city. And so I'm sorry to say, but Portland City Grill is like you think Portland, that's Portland's go-to restaurant. There's a lot of other places to try out, too. Um, Oh,
1: anybody says that, go to Departure. Oh, if yeah. you want the view, if that's what you're going for. Oh yeah! And
2: Plus, you can try Gregory Gorday's uh, amazing it's, combinations of fl- uh, flavors and healthy food. Too. Yeah, it's amazing.
1: It's crazy, but are, <laughs> But my point is, in you know, I've been doing what I'm doing for eight years, and I hear people who who haven't even heard of Paley's place, and they're saying <laughs> they they love food.
2: Yeah. Well, so, a lot of people say, I'm going to get to Kachka soon. And I'm like, I oh, do it yesterday. <laughs> the food is so good. It's little dumplings and sour cream sauce. I mean, it's broth. Oh, so good.
1: But that brings up, and I don't know if this has anything to do with the future, but it does because there's a plethora of restaurants. There's no, you know, there's no shortage. You can't possibly get to Kachka and Departure, and the list goes on and on and hit every – well, you can if that's all you do. But, um, but if you're just a normal person with a normal budget, you have this list of uh, bucket list re- places you want to go that just can't be, you can't whittle it down fast enough, and then there's 10 more places opening up.
2: Totally true. That's why I say surf the happy hour scene. Just go to as many as you want and sample them and then uh, come back for the real deal.
1: That's a great way to go about it.
2: Portland has great happy hours.
1: Yeah. So what do you think about the, Kurt, you have to be concerned with, how many restaurants are in Portland when you open one? And you just had, you just had, I'd like to talk a little bit about America, what happened there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> couldn't. I bet you couldn't wait. I
3: can't wait to talk about that one. But, uh, I think, first of all, I think that uh, Portland is is making a run right now to become the best drinking city in the country. So I think we're gonna transition from being a town that everybody talks about for eating, to being a t- town that everybody talks about for drinking, and uh, we have the best brewing scene in the country. Everybody recognizes that, um, and we have amazing distilleries. We have amazing wine. So, you know, it just so happens w- that all of this creative energy I think is going to be going towards drinking establishments that happen to all have something pretty darn good to eat. Um, and so that's that's my prediction for the next the next iteration of why it's cool to travel to Portland, but. You know, 50, when we talked to Travel Portland and they say over 50% of all tourism to Portland now, uh, they believe is a result of the food scene. So that, that's a, that's a massive change and a huge testimony to what's happened over the last 15 years. Is it um, the
1: 50, 15 years that the changes occurred or five or 10? I, I don't know. I think, uh,
3: you know, I, I didn't move back to Portland until 2008, but clearly the scene had been happening. You know, you think about when Tor Bravo opened or other places in that same time period um you know i think a lot of people date it to uh, naomi and, and michael and the ripe group and that kind of got the front page of new york times and then it came from then yeah but i don't
1: but even 2008 when you moved here if there wasn't you know 16 how many openings a month maddie i mean it, 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 <laughs> you, you had toro bravo open you had park kitchen had already been open country cat right but it was like one significant, if I recall, and I may be wrong. One significant restaurant every couple of months right.
3: would open. But also remember that that was concurrent with like the with the arrival of food media. So I think that there were. I mean, I don't. I can't cite any statistics, but I'm guessing that there were. You know, not. It's not like we're having ten times more restaurants open now than we did fifteen years ago. I just think there's a, an entire media infrastructure around talking about it. So. We're certainly aware now of everything that's happening, and something like Eater has become that kind of chat room about the scene uh, in the same way that we didn't have, used to have the Food Network, or we didn't have Bravo, or we didn't have those things. So I think there's just more awareness of kind of the hyperactivity in the in the industry. Um, I'm not sure that we are actually opening and closing more. I mean, growing up here in Portland, I, I saw tons of places that opened and closed and didn't work. It's just... It
2: was more of a neighborhood thing. It's just thing.
1: the spotlight that's on them now. How yeah. long has Eater been in Portland? You...
2: Uh, since the very beginning. So I think eight. 2008. Yeah, I think so. Yeah.
1: Because yeah. at the time, that's when I was starting to become, I moved here in 05 and I started to become aware with PortlandFoodandDrink.com, yeah. Food Dudes site, which was, you know, had some excellent reviews. It went deeper into the food scene than anything does now, unless you're following a critic or, you know, but he, he did a really good job. But now I think it's Eater and a lot of other sites and, of course, Instagram. That's right. You know, <laughs> media
2: it, is moving to social.
1: Yeah. If you, know how to, <laughs> if you know how to do Instagram well, you can be out there amongst a lot of people and get seen. It's free advertising.
2: Absolutely. I mean, food is—chefs are rock stars right now. Like, it's, it's just this beautiful way for people to connect on a human level. I mean, it, it makes sense that it's the latest obsession.
1: I find it amusing to see— when i started seeing vitali with a phone in his hand in the kitchen and and he's posting <laughs> his i don't think he's doing as much lately now that he's got 3 restaurants i don't see as many vitali <laughs> posts but when it was just paley's place four and he just opened a4 uh, right and he just opened imperial right crown um he was doing it a lot but i don't see it as much but chefs have to post it and i personally i don't know about you um but lately i think there's way too much food posting going on. I think it's fine, but I'm at the point where it's, I can't look at much more than I'm already looking at. What, what, what's going to be the threshold for, okay, every dish? Am, are you? Do you guys feel the same way that I do at all?
3: I, I'm i not a huge uh, Instagram user, in general, social media
1: user. Um, you recognize the significance of oh, yeah. owning a restaurant.
3: Yeah, and I think you try to understand uh, how do you how do you kind of uh, embrace what's happening without compromising the integrity of what you're doing? Because, uh, you know, there's lots of subtle accusations out there that uh, food is made to be Instagrammable. And that to me would be, you know, that would be uh, too bad. Um, And then there's, there's, uh, then there's a, you know, people just not embracing it at all and just putting out gloppy stuff that can't be shot. So I don't, I don't know, you know, if it's good or bad. We just see it as another trend, uh, another thing we have to deal with, like Yelp or, you know, reviews online or things like that. So, you know, I try to get Rick, for instance. I tell him, you know, let's work with more colorful pastas. I'm like, why not? To see, I want to see what a beet something or other looks like. Let's get some red in there. And in general, it just may not work at all. Uh, but I think it's 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 fun for us to see these trends and to challenge ourselves to say, can we somehow uh, you know, just jump a little bit on this without compromising the quality of what we're doing or anything else. Just to, you know, take that as a challenge, like an intellectual challenge.
1: Well, Rick was the first one I knew, and he may have gotten the idea, probably did from somebody else. But when he had his cart, he was the first one to put his logo on the paper right in front of the sandwich. So when you took a picture of it, it was right there. And then see a lot of people doing that now.
3: Yeah, and you're just defending your business, right? I mean, you're not doing this for uh, your health. So w- why not uh, self-promote? So you know, I think it's I think it's smart if people get traction. I don't look at it. I would never ever make a decision based on a photo. Um, So, but some people do. So what the hell? You know, if you can get on a roll with this stuff and get your name out there, then why not? I mean, I think it's smart.
2: Yeah, and I think that's what that that approach really makes a lot of sense to me. Um, It is a new tool and it is a trend, and there is good and bad about it. I mean, Instagram is at the end of the day a photo. Uh, so you really you're not going to eat that dish immediately. And the sad case is there are a ton of liquidy brown f- foods that are awesome okay. that you can't take a picture with mm-hmm. and make it look good. I mean these delicious curries with all this depth of flavor. How are you going to photograph all those spices? <laughs> you know, in that curry, it's not going to happen. Um, so there's a disconnect between flavor and uh, photos, and I think that it really needs to be recognized because so many of these pictures that come out are just. more like an artwork or a sculpture than an actual piece of food that you want to put in your mouth. Um, so
1: that's kind of my point. Some of the prettiest stuff, you know, it's one or two bites. That's great. It looks great. But is that where I want to be sitting, eating a a meal? I don't know. I, I just find that sometimes I, and I, and I know a lot of people in the food world, but my Instagram feed, if I look at it, it's like, okay, enough. Uh, and that's, (laughs) That's just me, though. And, but I, I would have to imagine one thing I've learned in life, that if I think something, a lot of people don't and a lot of people do.
2: Yeah, well, social media is going right now while we're talking. I mean, people are seeing tons of delicious things and making their decision about where to eat it for lunch right now. So, you know, it's, it's there are r- lardo sandwiches make me hungry whenever I see those on, uh, yeah. on, on a Instagram. Like that, I see the right uh, fried chicken sandwich I, right before I'm about to go get lunch. Uh, I'm out the door
1: and and alan is taking great pictures of it and putting them out there too and and uh he's just showcasing what's there he's not i don't think he's food styling right no he's just going in and taking and he does it for a number of restaurants alan uh Wiener. Wiener.
3: yeah no and people ask Um, about you know that it's a very inexpensive investment you know i think that uh we use alan at um for lardo and grassa and he takes, I think once a week, he does an hour of photos. So it comes out to not be a very uh, expensive investment. Um, and Rick has built a really big Instagram following. And so it's a great way to uh, tell people about the Chef Witch or, uh, you know, Rick is constantly adding new sandwiches, taking sandwiches off. So it's, it's a great way to kind of keep people aware of what's happening. Uh, so in that regard, it's really, it's a great way to kind of promote yourself and it's way cheaper than a PR a company, yeah. so you know it's. Uh, I think it's smart. Well, I always I encourage all the partners to do it. Just like look, speak with your own voice, get it down, take the time to do it, and put out content that's interesting. If you put out a picture of the same thing every time, nobody's going to follow it.
1: All right. And speaking of Chef, which by the way, brilliant idea. Which other like you know you have the same thing at 180, at Churros collaborations. Um, and I think it's at the point where a lot of, it's a, such a good idea that everybody would like to showcase the collaborative spirit in Portland, but you almost, it's now, I can't copy what, what they're doing, so they're looking for different ways to do it, I think. But do you think the collaborative spirit is going to, I think it'll, it'll sustain in Portland. I think everybody, you know, really enjoys um, championing, championing those people they know and, and respect, too. I, hope I, think, it I, I think it makes it unique. I think that's what makes Portland one of the huge. unique food cities in the country. Not so. Not in addition to how great the food is and how. But it's as you mentioned, Maddie, the ability to. And I've always felt the ability to have a relationship with the person cooking your food.
2: Yeah, and I mean Portland still has that small town vibe. It's illustrated by this type of uh, you know really robust community among the chefs here. Um, they like seem to enjoy each other's company and actually enjoy hanging out and i mean that will feed inspiration and innovation in a food scene forever um and and i love that small town part of portland uh i i truly hope it uh, will continue being as awesome it is and it is working well for pr so i would imagine it, it will continue um they're also doing the monthly brunch at uh, Stacked Sandwiches right. uh, where, like, you, another chef from around the city comes in and makes something amazing, like Naomi Pomeroy did uh, brunch last month. Mm-hmm. And that dish is on there all every weekend.
1: But I think that's also what makes this scene thrive so much is because when other chefs are touting what you're doing, that is, you know, that's an endorsement. Like, it's a better endorsement than someone on Yelp. It's a big, loud megaphone that someone's using.
2: Absolutely, and especially if uh, that chef has just a huge fan stardom following. I mean, there's it's a great way to connect with uh, the people that love eating your food, is to tell them about a dish that you're into. Um, and it's just a question of uh, where you wanna get your news from. There's about a billion places. So a chef uh, will clearly tell you their favorite things right now, um, and then probably connected to a lot of the people that they hang out with, spend time with. Yelp, a little bit more complicated, uh, unbiased reviews. Quote unquote, and uh, but not necessarily a professional uh, food, not a professional eater, and then there's media that, of course, is going to offer the objective uh, reviews of of food as well as uh, news, just straightforward news.
1: There were some quotation marks that just went up from <laughs> Kurt. So well, when, but anybody that thinks <laughs> that food media,
3: like the sanctioned food media, is objective is that's pretty silly. So,
2: yeah, but I, I mean, don't first you
1: first thing I see when I when I re- read a review is that's always subjective or anybody's opinion, because I've seen so many people trash things I liked and vice versa.
2: And I would say a food critic, like an established food critic like Michael Russell or uh, Karen Brooks, um, they, what makes sets them apart from other reviews is the fact that they've eaten tons and tons and tons and tons of food. And so they just have really uh, professional palates.
1: I don't know. I still think, I, no slight to them, but yeah. I still think that's their palate. There are certain things that I like that they're never going to like. Yeah, Absolutely. of course.
3: But I mean, I think my, my snide uh, winking over here is more has to do with I'm if glad you, you, take, you called attention to it. Yeah. <laughs> so if we take the major publications, I don't know what, let's say Oregonian, Portland Monthly, Willamette Week, Mercury, uh, let's say Eater. Okay? Take five people that talk the most about food. In, a, in your average review, what percent of the review is about the food and what percent is about the not food that to me is how you kind of gauge uh do you the, have the, data the, the, on the, the that? legitimacy have you
1: looked at it enough to, to be able so to you pull tell us
3: oh, i'm going to just posit something in the willamette week right when you read a review what percentage of that review is actually about the food what percentage is about the people around you and what percentage is about just kind of the vibe of the space and kind of a social commentary going on by the writers.
1: But shouldn't it be more than about the food? It should, for me, a review should be about the experience in total, which includes the food, the atmosphere, the service, all of that. And what happened around me, not just in one experience, though, I mean, because you could have a bad table next to you once, but, um, you know, with a a, uh, nice enough sampling so that you can get a vibe for the atmosphere. Don't well, I, that, but that I think part that of it, the yeah, whole I think
3: thing? I think Willamette Week writers enjoy uh, making their social commentary about the type of demographic that would enjoy what this is, as a way of suggesting uh, how they feel about it without having to be explicit. Are, about are
1: it. you referring to the recent May um, no. review? No, okay. no, no,
3: just in general. So, yeah. and I and I I get along really well with everybody there. It's just. I think it's just understood that there, there's a lot of social commentary, uh, especially when they don't like a place about uh, it being Beavertonian or, you know, other kind of catchwords that definitely means not for cool people, and that's a very important part of the uh, of their re- review content.
2: Yeah, and this whole subject is hotly debated among food reviewers and writers as well. Um, like some people, I truly think it should be rooted in the food always. Um, And I think that's the fundamental of any review is the flavors that cross your palate and putting them into context for your readers who might not have eaten at every Israeli-inspired restaurant in America, um, unlike a really experienced food critic. And so getting those flavors and putting them into context, that's the fundamental job, I think, of a food reviewer. But then you have uh, the atmosphere, the um, weird quirky things that have happened on those trips like uh, Ruth Reichel did such a good job of you know, comparing you know, her showing up as a fancy diner her versus her in a costume and she's a frumpy uh, older lady diner and just how the differences of how people treat you differently. Um, and that's a way of social commentary that I think is smart and we're all still talking about it. Then there's the more forced social commentary that people put in the reviews which uh, is... I think it's an important part of food reviewing too, but if it, if it takes the focus off of the food, then what are you talking about?
1: I guess reviewing has been going on forever, but I tend to get a little sad when someone has enough power to have a big impact financially on someone's livelihood and whether it may or may not be valid. Um, that to me is just, I don't know. I like to see positive reviews. I'd almost like to see if it's not great, just don't publish it. But I know that's never going to happen. And I know a lot of the, uh, you know, they rely on clicks and readers and the bad stuff gets more play than the good stuff.
3: A lot more yeah. play. But, yeah. And that used to be important and it's not really important anymore. A bad, bad review is not going to sink anything anymore. You don't think so? No, it's just that, you know, the, the, the voices are so diverse now and there's so many other ones whether it's the Instagram feed or whatever it is. So I think in the past you could say this review killed the restaurant, but it just, nobody's voice is that powerful anymore. I mean, it's much more dem- uh, you know, kind of democratic than it used to be.
1: That's interesting. And, um, that's true. There's a lot more outlets and it's not, yeah. no one newspaper is going to be the only voice. That's a good point. Because I've thought that's the case and I felt bad for, you know, I was on Facebook the other day and I, where there was a discussion. I don't remember exactly what it was about, but, um, but I mentioned Levant and Karen's review of that. And S- Scott, the chef owner, jumped in and said, that's not why we closed. We were open two years after that review. But I did say that probably affected it. It started, you know, it started things in a, in a negative direction. But that was three, four years ago. I don't know.
3: Yeah, I just, you look around the city and there's so many places that are just slammed that get terrible reviews and that are terrible. So it's just, uh, you know, there's just, there's always a counter argument against that. And I think in a very small demographic, there's kind of a a click of this and that. I mean, winning restaurant of the year used to be a really big deal. But now there's like seven different restaurants of the year and it just, it it barely makes a blip on the radar. Um, And, you know, I think the Oregonian makes, uh, uh, makes the biggest blip, but in general, it's just kind of, it's still a blip. It's not like back in the day when, I mean, I remember working with Andy when Pok Pok won restaurant of the year with uh, the Oregonian, and that was a that was a deluge, a deluge of clientele. Uh, when we won Rising Star for Ping, that was a deluge. I mean, it was like lines way out the door. And it's just changed. You know, it just doesn't happen like that
1: anymore. That's interesting. I would think that still Oregonian would have an impact. Um, It's just not as big an impact. Well, plus not as many people are reading
2: the newspaper anymore. I wonder how they're they're moving moving
1: all those people over to Oregon Live. Is that really happening? I don't know.
2: Yeah, I don't know. I, I mean, it's also, you can look at it from a media like the internet fundamentally is a publisher uh at least in my mind and they don't have any editors they just have uh, a bunch of rankings and metrics uh and so information for me has become more abstract Uh, we think this is something that's true over there um but i'm not that's something that looks really pretty on instagram i'm gonna like it but i'll never eat it you know that's abstract like for me i like to go taste something i like to feel it i like to meet people um, so if I'm going to get my information, I'm going to want to go to a news source who actually goes and talks to people and is, you know, professionals providing real information. That's just me.
1: Good. You want to name names? What do you mean? <laughs> who I like reading? Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: Mostly. Uh... <laughs> no, of course. I love uh, reading all the news sources here. I don't know.
1: Well, you have to for your, yeah. for your job. Well, you think you'll be in the future? Still continuing to read those the days that you're not with Eater any longer.
2: Oh, I will be reading Eater very, very regularly. I cannot wait to uh, read more of news coverage on Eater because that's the best way for me to find uh, the day-to-day food. What's happening in Portland?
1: But I mean the plethora, the, all the all the things you read. You have to read about to be editor of Eater. The day that you're not an editor any longer, do you think you're going to keep up with it as much?
2: <laughs> well, I probably won't check into my news feed first thing upon waking up. <laughs> might might have a cup of coffee first.
1: <laughs> so, so do you think there are any trends coming that we may... I mean, I heard a little bit of conversation about things moving to the suburbs. I mean, there's room for growth in Portland for sure. But is it too risky? I mean, I've been asking you to move something to Southwest Portland, not even outside of Portland, but down near Barber, uh, not just you, but I've mentioned, Kurt, I've mentioned, you know, geez, there's not much out there to eat that's great. And now with traffic, the way it is, maybe there are new opportunities. Yeah, I think a lot of people are open to it. I've been advocating it
3: for a long time. I I grew up in Southwest Portland. right? Um, So uh, it's not kind of that, that evil part that, or it's, it's a part of Portland, I think, that doesn't have uh, negative connotations that it used to have with chefs. I mean, every chef, back in 2008 when we opened Peng, uh, everything was happening in Southeast. You know, we opened in Chinatown. And then we opened Gruner. Nobody was opening in Southwest. Um, and and those have changed a lot. So now downtown is more of an acceptable destination. Uh, Northwest is an accept- acceptable destination. Uh, uh, location. And I think eventually deep, deep Southwest will be, and there's a lot of people out there and, uh, you've seen a lot of people be very successful up in Vancouver. I think Vancouver is an interesting uh, place to go. And, uh, I think it's just kind of growing up as, you know, Portland food scene is growing up a little bit and it's, it's okay to say, man, there are a ton of people out there that hate driving in.
1: Yeah. Especially with traffic. So if someone were to open in far Southwest, it's not just a neighborhood joint, but you have, you know, Lake Oswego and Tigard and Wilsonville. Those people yeah. would rather go there than go all the way. Yeah. So you wait for an people. for 45
3: minutes. Yeah, you see like Mark open taste bud in Multnomah Village mm-hmm. and kind of wait to see, Mark how, yeah, just, see, how, see how that goes and whether that's a successful thing. It seems to be successful. He seems to be busy. My mom lives in Multnomah Village, so I'm there pretty often. He seems to do well. I think the next, uh, you know, Cedar Hills is trying to bring a lot of people into that development. Um, I'm very interested in going out towards, uh, like, the Deep Lake Grove area. I think that there's a lot of opportunity out there. But, you know, Portland's a town where when you live in it and you're around it all the time, you have a real sense for neighborhoods and what's happening. And that's like, that's going to a different universe. So it's hard to know what is out there Um, and kind of whether it's going to be a smart decision or not. So we're just playing hard to get with the developers out there uh, because we want them to pay for everything because uh, I don't want any more risk than I need to take. And uh, what they are in general very interested in are sit-down restaurants to anchor commercial developments. And so it's going to happen. I know it's going to happen. Just a matter of kind of when. Uh, so you don't, be, see it, you
1: don't see it in 2018 necessarily?
3: I think the first in 2018, You know, we're working on a, uh, some deals out there. 18, 19, 20, I think that's when it's going to start happening. And I think it'll be great. I mean, that's that's the only part of Portland where franchises real. You have to drive pretty far outside of Portland to find major franchises. And I think that we can go after that.
2: I like it. I feel like uh, Portland's for so long has been defined by its neighborhoods, which is like one of my favorite things about the city is that it has a, this anarchist uh, way of being where there's a little – Local uh, neighborhood here, neighborhood there, and each one has its own restaurants and its own style, and, and it's complete unto itself. Um, and that was because there was no downtown, like to speak of. I feel like there wasn't just a huge amount of food to eat in Southwest. Um, and that's now that that's changing, I am really fascinated to see how the neighborhoods shape up. Um, will they still be destinations on the same level, or will people just corral in downtown in the uh, you know in the hotel restaurants, which are turning out great food? Um, it's going to be fascinating. Do you have any feeling on that, Kurt?
3: Um, downtown I think is a, is a pretty exciting area. I think, um, you know, it's kind of started up, let's say, you know, towards 405 is kind of the top of downtown. Now you've got Andy with a Pock Pock up, uh, just across the 405 and then you kind of come down and once you're in the West end, it gets pretty, pretty dense. I mean, whether you have, you know, Chris, Christopher with a bamboo, is there you have rick with lardo and grasa uh you have greg and gabby with beast or agnes um you have john
1: Gorham yeah.
3: with uh tasty and alder you have multnomah whiskey library so i mean there's a lot of density there and i really believe in that alder corridor i think it's going to continue doing uh really well and but it's you know it's also the competition heats up and you just wonder where uh where the right places are i'm bullish on downtown because traffic just gets tougher and tougher. So it's a great place to be for tourism because you don't have to go too far. You know, people can always get there quickly. Um, But I also really like the Northwest area down where they're doing those huge developments on 21st. I love that area down there. And it's Breakside that's down there, right? Yep. Yeah, and that place is booming. So I think
1: there's, you know, there's a lot of, who knows, I mean. So let's talk a little bit about hotels. Yeah. Because, um, you know, David Machado has found a love of hotels and there's <laughs> gotta be, it's gotta be a reason for that. You know, financially speaking, there are certain advantages to hotels. You talked about tourism. Um, what about, you have some ex- recent experience? We yeah. g- We've started and we didn't go back to America. Well, what, hotels what some- are,
3: I mean, traditionally, when you talk to uh, restaurant groups, um, and we can talk about like the Michael Minas or people like that, there's, uh, there's a lot of, hotels have very, very deep pockets and uh and they're willing to uh, spend real money to make sure that the food and beverage in their hotels uh is at a standard that they uh think is you know appropriate to be an amenity for their for their guests. And so uh, I think the Provenance group here in Portland who we've worked with uh, once in Seattle and now here in Portland has really made us name for themselves nationally by uh creating restaurants uh, with local chefs so uh, and there's a long list of them and I think they've done really really well uh, most recently in uh, New Orleans um, with a wonderful restaurant there that got all sorts of accolades so they, they bring very deep pockets uh, and the ability to, to put together restaurants that Portland hadn't really seen previously from independent operators you know because these things are very expensive to build uh, and so they come in and allow you to do some pretty cool stuff that the Portland scene hadn't really seen before. And,
1: and mitigate the risk a little bit.
3: Oh yeah. Cause they in general pay for all the build out. And then you have two options as an operator. You can either rent it from them. Uh, and so for instance, Vitaly, you know, he's a tenant. Uh, he's not a partner. He's just a tenant at these different hotels and he pays a rent, uh, to the hotel and he operates there. Uh, and then there are also management, uh, deals. And that's what we did at uh, at the dossier, uh, with Opal and Omerta. And that's when the hotel comes to an operator and say, not only will we build it all out, but we'll assume all operating risk and just pay you to uh, run it, pay you to concept it and to run it. So you work with them and they tell you what they want to do and you execute it, uh, as best you can. And then they pay you an amount of money every month to make sure that it runs properly and that the quality is high. So that's a very typical deal that the Minna Group does um, uh, in you know California and wherever else they are. So those are kind of the two options. And uh, we have um, done both. Uh, in Seattle, we, I'm a, a part owner of a restaurant that pays rent. And then here, I was part of one that just has a management fee. And um, we ended up leaving uh, about a month ago. And uh, it just, you know, the, the hotel is shifting directions a little bit about, well, a lot, how it uh, not really brands itself, but how it positions itself in the market. And what we had done for them turned out to not be what they wanted. Uh, so we did a very, very high end Italian place with tableside service and swarming people and carts. And, um, and uh, I was uh, pleasantly surprised to see how much people liked it. Uh, not necessarily all the reviewers, although Michael Russell uh, and um, and Andrea Danwood from uh, Mercury really really liked it. Um, so it was nice to get that critical feedback. Uh, even Martin Sismar uh, admitted to enjoying his experience and was charmed, uh, which is words I hadn't heard from uh, from him before. Um, so it was it was interesting to kind of embrace that challenge, but it's also very humbling to realize that. Uh, when you're doing something from somebody for somebody else, you quite literally have no uh, decision-making power as to when they close it. So when they decided to close after investing all this money and all this work, you just realize there are other considerations that are much, much bigger to these deep-pocketed in- individuals. So if they have to change and reposition the hotel, you're just a rounding error in that calculation. So I think it's an interesting thing for uh, you know as as hotel groups get more and more involved uh in restaurants they do put certain kinds of handcuffs on you that can limit what you're able to do and how you pivot and how you position yourselves and very often uh and there's a very prominent hotel uh restaurant that opened probably you know last six months here in Portland and um you know the stories from there are that they want to change and the hotel won't let them change so that's the real conundrum right it's like the money's awesome. But it truly takes the creative control away from the chef. So how it's do the you? The exact
1: opposite of everything that we knew from 2005 till 2015, 16, right. and so many new hotels coming in, which indicates what's going to happen in right. Portland. Yeah, yeah and they, you
3: have to you have to abide by what they need. Right at, at, at a minimum, you have to provide three services. Right, you have to do breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. You have to do banquets. You often have to do room service. So it's a it, at the, at the least, it's distracting to take on all of those things at once. And so uh, that's a consideration. And, um, and I think it's, it's going to be very interesting to see over time uh, how those evolve. Like, what is, is it a good thing or a bad thing for the Portland food scene uh, to have that kind of money coming in? Uh, will the restaurants over time be in general interesting or in general less interesting? And is it going to draw that tourism to places that are less interesting and less dynamic than the independents where they might have gone previously?
1: And perhaps more expensive. If you look at some of the the hotel restaurant menus, they're a little higher than you'd find generally everywhere else. So is that going to be people's impression of the Portland market when they come to visit? Because it's very different than the experience that we've all had getting to know the the Some of the smaller neighborhood restaurants that grew on organically.
2: And that's the great fear, I think, is uh, like you introduce people come to Portland, they stay in a hotel and they hear great things about the restaurant inside of the hotel and they try it out. But the hotel restaurant isn't necessarily actually a Portland restaurant, doesn't have a chef who believes in Portland ideals, but it does have a lot of great marketing money um, that makes it look like they're seasonal and local and and have some really thoughtful um, twists to their food. But, uh, you know, that's going to be 2018, I think, is really seeing how this hotel dining thing is shaping up because it's really good right now. There's a lot of great. I mean, there's really good restaurants out there um, and led by Imperial. um, Like they just really changed the game. And uh, and so I'd like to think that good food will still stand out in a hotel. Um, But there's a lot of hotel restaurants opening next year, and it's really going to be—you got to see what 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 actually is being served, not just what it's being sold.
1: Well, and you know, Dougie was signed up what two years in advance, or you know, almost two years in advance. Now he's at the woodsman
2: for a little bit, right? To
1: to create some interest and excitement there, but it's been a long time. So the food cart pod like the major food cart pod in Portland looks like it's going to be closing from what I've read and you've published some yeah, stories.
2: it seems like the most advanced proposal for pushing food carts out right, right. now.
1: So what does that do? Because those there, I mean, food cart parts, pods all over the city is one thing if you're in a neighborhood and you want to stop and get something really cool. But there, as a destination for lunch, uh, I think changes the game. And, you know, it's no secret that um, eliminating those and then taking a couple of them and maybe making them brick and mortars in your new giant building uh, changes the the personality of the whole area.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the core identities to Portland food is these amazing food carts where you can get an $8 meal uh, that is food that you've never eaten anywhere else cooked by somebody, um, you know, who actually grew up eating it. And uh, I think... Obviously, food carts are going to be on their way out. It's not a question of uh, if; it's a question of when. Um, those lots in downtown Portland are just too valuable um, to not develop. The city is definitely believing, <laughs> um, and uh, so those the question is whether there'll be one or two that remain. You know, can like if you just have one downtown food cart pod, can it be profitable enough to uh, to continue to be there? Um, and if not, then Will food cart pods open in the suburbs, and will that take tourism to the suburbs? And I would love to see that. I think, I mean, food carts have to be part of Portland's identity. They're too delicious.
1: <laughs> well, look at look at what Burger Stevens is doing out there. I mean, oh, yeah. He's doing well, and he's and he added to it.
2: He's a rock star. Yeah, Those, uh, incredible burgers.
1: Yeah, and that that's not that wasn't the what the conventional wisdom would say. Here's where you want to put your food cart.
3: Right, right. It's, I don't. I think it's a pretty dynamic market i mean i think i mean you think about burger stevens he's out i'm in front of wilson high school where i went to high school um and he's just kind of there
1: great school then right obviously just amazing and you weren't you weren't as nourished then you you had to live with the cafeteria food (laughs) ketchup Uh, was a vegetable that's right
3: it's my 30th reunion uh we're throwing it at one of our places uh in uh in july so it'll be it'll be interesting they offered to let us tour Wilson, as part of it.
1: I did uh, that for my 30th. I went back. They built a whole new school and I wasn't well, I was supposed to be excited about my thing isn't even there anymore. You knocked it down and you built this. <laughs>
3: yep. But uh, he. I, but that's just a, for me a good example about how you can get very creative with food carts. And I, I think it's important to remember that uh, from a regulatory standpoint, uh, people like Multnomah County Health are incredibly flexible on allowing these things to pop up almost anywhere. So I think as long as there's a little driveway or a little nook, I think that a food carts require nothing. You know, you have your gray water, you have a power or a generator and you're, you're good to go. I mean, they don't, the, you know, as far as the health safety concerns, they're, they're very amenable as long as you make sure you're doing everything properly. So I, I can just imagine a future where there's food carts in unexpected locations and like nooks and crannies all over the place. And I think that, you know, commercial real estate people understand that there's a real attraction to having them, and, um, you know, we had one, we have a right to have one at Lardo, and, you know, we've thought over time, you know, maybe we should in, in the future have something that works well with us, and we used to have a um, a dessert cart there, and that didn't work well, but if the next door area goes away, then why not, you know, why not kind of pitch in to make sure that that becomes an exciting part of what Portland is, and, It'll definitely go out to the periphery, you know, out on Foster Powell and stuff like that. I mean, I think there's going to be empty lots out there for a long time. But it'd be a bummer to see them go away completely in the downtown. But I do think that people, you know, it's a pretty resilient market. And people that do food carts are willing to put up with a lot of baloney. I mean, it's cold, it's awful, it's hot, it's awful. So I think, you know, shoving them somewhere, I I think it can still work. And I think the city will work with it to make sure it happens.
1: And I think it's a nice incubator for the future lardos of the world, right? That's how that... It's a wonderful thing when you see that happen, right? Yeah. And they, they, they're they nice success stories from opening a little food cart for 20 grand. It's just a
3: nice amenity to offer people that are traveling, if nothing else. I mean, it's so cool. It's just fun. People love it. People love going to check it out. and you know, it's, it's Walking great. around
1: the block and deciding this is where I'm going to eat or I'm going to get a little of this and a little of that. Yeah, I I
3: think it's going to be... A long time and we're working on a deal right now to uh for and i won't brag about it it's something happening and but there is an empty parking lot right behind it and they have no intentions to use it so i was talking to the guys about man we should we should do something there i mean you should have like food carts because they're going away everywhere else be a great way to you know to get a little bit more income uh because you know the the people that are renting to food carts now they're not doing it out of the kindness of their heart they're making $550, $600 550 dollars a month for one parking stall. So why not do that somewhere else? I still think that it's a very fluid market, you know. And you you push down one, and the gopher head pops up somewhere else. So I think that you could find a lot somewhere. Continue to find lots for quite a while here that are going to stay empty.
1: Yeah, that's from the food cart perspective, but from the consumer's perspective, to have no more food cart options downtown that changes portland i think and lot. that
2: does seem to be yeah. what's happening is that they are getting pushed out quite a ways but there's still several really hardcore most iconic food cart pods in portland that are still there in downtown yep. i mean i mean one is definitely on the chopping block right now though
1: yeah <laughs> well, it's a big one so i'd be remiss if i didn't ask you kurt specifically uh exciting things that you see for your business that are coming in 2018 um either generally or specifically, some new things that you're working on? Oh, boy.
3: Uh, uh, there's always a lot of things going on. We don't know what's going to end up happening. We always keep a lot of irons in the fire. Um, we're working with this group out of Iceland uh, called Kex, and we're, uh, we just signed a deal with them last week. So Kex is a youth hostel. It's a hostel in a way that we don't really have in America. The closest would be the Society Hotel, here in town mm-hmm. so we're going to be uh bringing them here for probably a 2019 opening um and taking over a building and turning it into a hostel and they were here for feasts this year the kex guys and i think Eater or i thought it was Eater named their dish the most interesting dish of the brunch it was that fish dish the fish and oh, potato yeah. dish yeah yeah um so Oli, the chef was here so it's a it's wonderful food it's amazing hospitality so that's pretty exciting for us. Um, we've got, you know, we're trying to do some more projects with uh, with Rick, both Lardo and Grasa. Um, we have a couple loyal legion projects that are in the hopper, um, and then I just continue to talk with anybody that everybody that talks to me. So
1: I was going to ask you, are you is, are you going to get to the point? You only have so much bandwidth. Would you get to the point where you just have to concentrate on what you're doing and not? Is is your function with Chef's Table? Mostly development, and but you do a lot of you're you got hands on day to day operations. Yeah. too. yeah. I mean, now we've we've grown enough. I mean, it's not we
3: I think you know we have nine employees at the center office, so it's not huge. But now, pretty much all the project management is done by Jessica Silverman, who's my first employee and uh, the bedrock of our company. Um, so, and she, I'll
1: note that you lifted your fist with yeah, that. You really meant it.
3: Yeah, the uh, <laughs> the iron fist of the company. So she. She's now managing all new project development, and so I can step away completely from that. Um, we have a new director of operations that's come in, and so you know I'm supposed to be out more or less of those two things, and I can just focus on, you know, doing very important radio shows and uh, uh, smiling and waving
1: a lot. And you know, when you started Chess Table, you didn't have a family. I
3: didn't either. have a family. So yes, I'm now. sure
1: you're working on that. Yes. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So that's good. So Cora, my daughter, Heather, my wife, uh, we're, we're keeping things busy. Tommy, my stepson. So I love the
1: name Cora. It's something I have not heard since the postman always rings twice.
3: It's a great name.
1: Movie Cora. Yeah.
3: She, uh, my wife wanted to name her, uh, um, what was it? Persephone. And that's that just nice seemed name. like too big of a mouthful. And I think so, three
1: syllables is it's it's understood. That's too much. That's too it's much. End up so with Cora was else. a
3: short name for Persephone yeah. in ancient Greek. It just means the maiden. So, um, but it's a good. You know, it's going to be a great year. I think. Uh, um, you
1: didn't say that last time you were here. Was it a year, two years ago? Two years ago, almost.
3: Yeah. Well, we focused a lot on getting out of things that uh, weren't good and focusing a lot of attention on getting things that were middling doing well um and uh as long as i stop making dumb decisions then you know we should be okay but i have a propensity for doing harebrained stuff yeah
1: but you gotta in order to succeed you gotta make those so you learn and you you know if you never take risks that's not yeah no
3: we take a lot of risks so but i you know i'm i'm excited i'm worried about the the scene because i want i want us to uh i want us to hopefully as a as a city to understand how Important food has become for the city, and to to make sure that collectively we're working towards uh, maintaining a really dynamic environment, and 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 hopefully you know the risk taking part of it can stay uh, a, a priority. Um, there's going to be a lot of external money that comes in, that I think draws a lot of uh, attention away from uh, the food scene that I think matters here in Portland, and that's the local food scene. So. In that regard, I don't view like, the pink like tacos. Yeah, I don't view that uh, w- with excitement because whatever they bring is going to be boring and not very good. Um, so there's some concern about that. Uh, I have a huge worry about the brewing industry, the microbrewing industry. I think is going to have a terrible 2018.
2: Yeah, it's it's already begun.
3: Yeah, it's just too much competition, too many people. Um, there's just not there aren't enough tap handles to handle it. Um, so I think that's that's a, a concern, um, and so, but I, in general, I think for the food and the drinking scene here in Portland, I think 2018 is going to be an exciting year.
1: Cool. Before I get Maddie's take on 2018, I just want to ask you because we discussed it quite a bit on this podcast: is the Lardo lawsuit uh, put being put aside now, which is allowing you oh, yeah. to do the, the kind of things that you talked about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lard- we
3: signed. It was an awesome deal. Uh, they uh, it was a nine million dollar lawsuit i yeah, think yeah it
1: was it started out
3: yeah so we ended up uh settling uh for 250 and uh uh and then bought bought out our partner for uh effectively nothing uh and uh so now rick and i own 50 50 each uh so uh we that couldn't be you a little more yeah, yeah we little couldn't little be more. wouldn't couldn't be happier about that and um now you know the vegas thing is coming and that's uh, that's a huge deal for us um, and you know, deals like that are are interesting, and I think a real validation of all the work that Rick has done. Uh, so, or we're we're uh, we're really pleased. I'm really pleased with Rick. is a hard, hardworking guy. So I just I couldn't be more pleased that 2018 for him is going to be kind of the end of all that silliness. Uh, He's and, a little stressed out. Yeah, and he can actually we can actually put some of this money in our pocket instead of paying it out.
1: Fantastic. Okay, Maddie, we don't have a lot of time left, but what do you foresee, generally speaking, for 2018? I think Kurt's, Kurt's take was really cool.
2: Yeah, I, th- I mean, we have a lot of second restaurants from really great chefs coming, like Kochka um, in May. I guess May's first, uh, Brick and Mortar, and obviously Bullard from Tom, um, Doug Adams. Uh, so I think, yeah, 2018 is going to be great uh, for Portland restaurants. It is really shaping up to be promising. Uh, personally like I am really excited to continue to support the restaurants I love um, who are the restaurants and chefs who when I moved who exhibit what Portland was to me when I moved here um, in 2010 uh, which is a high quality of life was a huge part of it and this bold reckless uh, verging on reckless uh, style of cooking and those restaurants are what make Portland what it is today uh, to a great Extent and so it's all about sh- continuing to support them while Portland goes through this growing spurt and uh, making sure that Portland's identity doesn't get lost in the shuffle because so many people are moving here because they love what Portland is um, and now it's it's time to support what Portland is.
1: So you got your eater thirty eight, you got your you know the hottest restaurants now. If someone's listening to this podcast and doesn't necessarily live here or just moved here, at what would be five restaurants? Realizing you can't mention them all, that. That would typify what you're talking about.
2: Oh God, that's hard. Um, but yeah, the Eater 38 is a great place to start. <laughs> I mean, seriously, that's, that, that's what it's about. Um, those guys have been around for a long time and established themselves uh, as what uh, restaurants that define what it is to be a Portland restaurant. Um, but Ava Jeans, I think, is one of the best restaurants that I've ever eaten at anywhere in the world. Um, and that, and I, and I moved here from Italy. So, like, quality of life in, yeah, p- in that, Portland was really an important part for me. I could have moved anywhere in the world. I want to move here because of the quality of life. And Ava Jean's exhibits that to me every time I eat there. It's uh, this incredible produce, this incredible uh, hands-on, passionate approach to pastas. I mean, it's beautiful. Um, and then Kochka is just such a unique opportunity to try really involved uh, Russian food um, in a fun, fun setting with lots of vodka Um, I think you have to continue to go to Nong's, uh, the food cart, um, to know what Portland food is about uh, from the food cart perspective. Uh, It's about somebody who moved here with only a few bucks in their pocket, was able to start a business and become an icon of our city. Uh, And now I got two more to list. Um. That's right, You don't have to. (laughs) Uh,
1: You've actually done a service to the podcast because... We've had none of those people on uh, who own those restaurants on the podcast, and I've talked to them all and said we need to have you on. So now I, I've got a, a firm assignment to um, get that rocking. That would be uh, great for upcoming episodes. We have um, Katie and Sandek actually waiting to come on. They're going to be in January, a couple of weeks after this streams, and we'll also have um, we'll also have Maya opening the year, talking about her new May as well. So awesome. those, are, those are great restaurants, too. So thank you guys so much for taking the time. I know you're busy. Um, so coming by for over an hour has been great. Appreciate it. And we'll look forward to updates, too.
2: Thank you, Chris. Merry Christmas, Curtain, Chris.
1: <laughs> thank you.
0: Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's Unsurpassed Quality. From the best meats and wines to local baked goods, fresh flowers, and an extensive craft beer selection. Step into Zupan's and be inspired for your next meal. Food loving customers as well as local chefs know that Zupan's is the place to find the very best Northwest Bounty in Portland, West Burnside, Southwest McAdam, and Lake Oswego. Local and family owned for over 40 years, Zupan's Markets.